Charter schools in the state of Massachusetts present a paradox. The sector's track record in producing schools that outperform district-run alternatives, particularly for urban students of color, is unsurpassed nationwide. Yet it is also among the slowest-growing charter sectors in the country and the subject of unending political controversy. That controversy came to a head in a 2016 ballot initiative to lift the cap on charter growth in the state's urban centers, an initiative that was defeated by overwhelming margins. So what have policymakers gotten right on charter schooling in the state of Massachusetts? Where have they gone wrong? And what should happen next? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Kara Stillings-Candell, senior fellow at the Pioneer Institute and the author of the new book, The Fight for the Best Charter Public Schools in the Nation. You can find a blog post by Kara discussing some of the main lessons from her book on our website at educationnext.org. And I'm happy to say that she's agreed to spend a few minutes discussing those lessons with me today. Kara, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you for having me. So I should say up front that I have a stake in this topic as a member of the Massachusetts Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, which serves as the sole authorizer of charter schools in the Commonwealth. So I'm particularly interested in the lessons you draw for policymakers here and beyond. But let's start with the facts about charter schools in Massachusetts. What gives you the confidence to describe them as the best charter public schools in the nation? Well, you're right that it is a a pretty confident title. Um, What I like to say is that this book, uh, it leads with the data. So we do have a lot of high-quality data, high-quality studies of Massachusetts charter schools, because one of the things we do really well here in the Commonwealth is gather data very transparently. And um, the title comes from the idea that we have several studies that show not only that on the whole our Commonwealth charter schools, so our most autonomous charter schools, perform very well, but that charter schools in Boston in particular close achievement gaps at rates that are really unprecedented in the nation. So the Credo study out of Stanford University pointed that out first in you know, um, 2013, 2015, looking at urban charter schools in particular, and cited Boston as adding you know, tons of additional learning time for kids in both reading and math and, and closing achievement gaps. So that's, that's where the title comes from. It comes and from the data. One of the concerns some people raise about the Credo studies is that they could be driven in part by selection into charter schools that those who are choosing to attend may differ in ways that we can't really control for in those type of analyses. So I think it's also worth noting that we have a number of studies that have been conducted that take advantage of the lotteries into oversubscribed charters in the state. Can you say a bit about that? Absolutely, absolutely. So we have, yes, we do have a number of studies from places like MIT and researchers at the University of Michigan showing that when you compare um, students who have won the charter school lottery, I kind of hate to use that word, but who, who entered charter schools because they, um, they won in the lottery, to students who were similarly motivated, meaning they entered the lottery but did not get a seat in a charter public school, that for students that are in those Commonwealth charter public schools, outcomes are very strong and they're closing gaps. And so that's a, the kind of high quality apples to apples comparisons that we're talking about. I think it's also important to note that the most recent studies um, from Elizabeth Cetron at MIT also show that charter schools are doing that um, without pushing students out. So for a long time, there's been a critique that it was really hard to um, to give data to prove that the critique was wrong, um, that we that charter schools somehow were 
pushing away uh, students with special educational needs or English language learners. And due to legislation that was passed in 2010, that's changed quite a bit. And her work shows that not only are charter schools continuing to close gaps, but they're doing it without that kind of creaming or cherry picking that charter detractors like to point to. Yeah, to the extent that there are students with disabilities underrepresented in the charter sector in Massachusetts, it appears to be largely a consequence of them avoiding educational problems that lead to identification, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess the fact that those lottery-based studies can be uh, conducted at all points to another indicator of success, and that's that there's a lot of demand for seats in charter schools, especially in the state's urban areas. There's a lot of demand. So in the Commonwealth on the whole, we have over 26,000 students, individual students, on wait lists for charter public schools, and many of them are concentrated in urban areas, in high-demand areas. We have many urban areas that are that are at the cap, and yes, absolutely, parent demand shows that these schools not only are providing high-quality academic options, but in many cases, and I would argue that we need more of this, but in many cases, distinct innovative options for students. And so the track record of performance is very strong, and that record, if not universally accepted, is, I think, widely acknowledged among stakeholders here in the Commonwealth. What, in your view, explains that record of success? If you had to point to the handful of factors that are most important, what comes to mind? Yeah, well, of course we could talk about what goes on at individual school levels. And as a former teacher, I love to spend time in charter schools, but that's it, hard to quantify sort of what teachers are doing in the classrooms. And this book looks instead at the policies that Massachusetts has put in place that, that I believe, you know, according to my research, contribute to success. So the first is that... You know, we've had two um, different authorizers. We've always had the state as an authorizer here, but now um, authority for authorizing is under the board of elementary and secondary education. But our authorizers have always guarded charter school autonomy in, in, in my opinion, in very strong ways, especially compared to other states. And they've always taken very seriously the other end of the bargain, which is accountability. So when charter schools fail to perform, they are supposed to close. And we have closed schools here in the Commonwealth for failure to perform. Other schools have surrendered their charters. So I think that that's one really important part of um, why charter schools perform well. I think we also need to look very closely at the charter school funding formula. So while there are some inequities in terms of charter schools don't see, don't receive facilities funding um, uh, at the same rates as their district counterparts. In fact, they receive a pretty meager allotment. But in terms of the per pupil allocation, we have a formula here where funding for charter schools follows the child. So that districts, um, when, a, when a student chooses to leave a district school for a charter, the money that would have been earmarked for his or her ed education follows him or her to the charter. Um, we also reimburse districts for a period of six years. And that, um, now the reimbursement formula hasn't always been fully funded. I have some recommendations around that. But, but that really sets us apart um, nationally in terms of, you know, making sure that charter schools are equitably funded and also to the extent that we can, that districts aren't suffering because of a decline in enrollment. And how much would you attribute to unique aspects of the environment in Massachusetts or the Boston area? One factor that a lot of people have pointed to is just the strong supply of recent college graduates, yeah. that Boston is a relatively desirable place to live despite the cost of living, and that maybe even if policymakers were to apply the Massachusetts model, that a place like Dayton, Ohio, or a rural area might find less success? How much of a role does that I, play? So I think that there there's a little something to that in that as charter schools have expanded um, out toward places outside of Boston, for example, one of the primary um, 
sort of concerns you'll hear is that it's a little bit harder to find human capital. It's a little bit harder to find those teachers and school leaders. And Boston, yes, is a net producer of teachers, and we also have a lot of uh, universities around here who, especially in the early days of the charter school movement, sort of churned out really innovative ed entrepreneurs. However, I think we need to balance that against the idea that we've had a charter school cap um, on the number of schools that can exist in this commonwealth from the beginning. And I think that over time, we've seen would-be education entrepreneurs and innovators leave the commonwealth to go to other places, to go to New York, to go to Colorado, to places where charter school caps weren't so stringent, and they could start those new and innovative schools. And so we see high-performing charter sectors in other places. Many of those sectors have talent that began in Massachusetts. And that leads naturally into what was going to be my next question, which deals with the cap. As you note and as you explain in the book, growth of charters in Massachusetts has been tightly capped throughout the history of the charter school movement here. I think initially 25 schools, then a battle to raise it to 50. Uh, and I think some observers attribute some of the success of Massachusetts charter schools to the fact that there was this tight cap, that this led authorizers to be very careful about who they allowed to start schools. Do you think that's part of the dynamic as well? Could the cap have in some ways contributed to the quality of the sector? I, I absolutely think that the cap in the beginning contributed to the quality of the sector. And in fact, in interviews for the book with folks who worked in the first charter authorizing office, one of the things they pointed out was that even if they had the inclination to do so, they could never let sort of a thousand flowers bloom because we only had 25 schools that we could establish in the beginning. And so the approach to authorizing from the outset was one of trying to discern with very limited information, because we wanted to focus on outcomes rather than inputs, which kinds of schools might perform well. Um, that original office, I think it's important to point out, was really also hesitant to put sort of its thumb on the scale and say that a certain type of school would work. But um, yeah, the cap and the constrained sort of decision making that it forced, I think, played a role. Uh, I would argue, however, that it's, it's long outlived its usefulness, because we do have a very strong authorization process here. And so not everything is rosy about charter schools in Massachusetts, of course. And one way in which that's obviously the case is the politics surrounding them. So why hasn't this record of performance been enough to build political support for charter schools in the Commonwealth over time? Yeah. No, I mean, so that's really the question that's, that's sort of at the heart of this book, trying to figure that out. And it's it's strange that at the same time we were starting to understand the outcomes of these charter schools, because remember, they started with education reform, sort of before we had um, really valid MCAS results, our, our state test, among other things. Um, the, the political environment around charters um, as demand increased, the political environment became more and more um, partisan. And in the beginning, it was really a bipartisan thing. It was a bipartisan movement, a bipartisan idea. I think that one of the things I theorize is that with the last lift of the cap in 2010, which happened only in our lowest performing districts, and circumscribed sort of charter growth to what we call proven providers or operators with a proven track record, to my mind, that changed perceptions about charter schooling, and, and not in a good way. Um, it sort of pitted charter schools even more against district schools by painting them as an escape valve from failing districts, uh, something that districts don't like, of course, who would? And it also um, 
it, it quashed innovation in, in really interesting ways. So not to say that those who were authorized, those proven providers who were authorized after that cap lift in 2010 weren't innovative, but they could only be innovative in their own contexts. And so we sort of lost this flavor of a charter movement. I mean, when parents demand more charter schools, they're not just demanding great academic outcomes, they're demanding innovation and diversity and actual options for kids. And I think that that fostered a perception of charter schools, that they were sort of all the same. They were about one way of doing school. That's something that I heard in a lot of interviews. They were about doing school, not about a certain structure for schooling that allowed for innovation. And I think that that contributed to um, negative perceptions of charters that, quite frankly, charter opponents, uh, namely in the form of the state's two leading teachers unions, um, could glom onto and say, look, they're not doing anything innovative. They're just the same old, same old. That's so interesting about the 2010 cap lift, which was widely heralded at the time as being a smart cap, right? We're yep. allowing growth only where it's needed and limiting it to those with a proven track record of producing high quality schools in those kinds of settings. Uh, it may have been tactically a sound decision, but strategically a poor one for uh, subsequent growth in the state. I think in hindsight, it was absolutely a very poor uh, decision, although well-intentioned. And of course, the other big point of contention in the debate over the 2016 ballot question dealt with the impact of charter schools on school districts financially. That seemed to me as an observer in the state at the time uh, to be the uh, talking point that, that got the most traction. What do you make of that critique, and why do you think it was able to sway so many minds? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the big question. And we spend uh, an entire chapter in this book following the money, so to speak. Um, uh, I had the help of economist Ken Arden on that chapter. And I think that, listen, to the, to the point of the ballot initiative, um, when, when charter opposition says that uh, charters drain funding from district schools, it's in many ways a very hard argument to disprove because our funding formula is less than transparent. <laughs> so, um, and if you are a suburban voter, not very familiar with charter schools, and you think of charter schools as only for the other, so to speak, then if somebody tells you, hey, if you vote for this, you're going to really harm um, the schools that most kids attend, you're probably going to, with a lack of information, or I would say in this case, some misinformation, make a decision that you think is just not going to hurt anybody. So I think that's to the point of the ballot initiative. But the larger point here about our funding formula is that there are some really good things about it. Um, in that money for schools follows kids, I think that that's something that we should think about just for schools in general. Um, however, there's also this contentious issue of the charter school reimbursement formula. So here we can say that we're distinct in the nation because we reimburse districts when they lose kids to charter schools up to 225% over six years of the one-time cost of losing a kid to a school. But the legislature hasn't fully funded that reimbursement formula over time, and that's a fair point that the charter that people who don't want to see the cap lifted can make. In the chapter, what we find is that it's the very rare case that you that you actually see money being drained from districts to go to charters. It happens in some cases, um, specifically in districts that are what we call above foundation, the majority of money not coming from the state. In an instance where you see a large decrease in enrollment in that district of kids going to charter schools, and at the same time a spike in enrollment from kids coming in, takes a while for the funding to catch up. So in very few cases, districts are squeezed, and that just contributed, I think, to this hype about the ballot, even though in the vast majority of cases, Cases, it's simply a disingenuous argument to say that charters drain funding. And I would note that there's a very well done recent study out from MIT recently that looked at what happened to district finances 
in places that uh, did expand their charter sectors in the wake of the 2010 cap lift and really finds that despite any shortcomings in the legislature's funding of that reimbursement formula, that nonetheless districts, as they lost students to charters, ended up much better off on a per-pupil basis and that they made different decisions with their spending, putting more of them into the classroom, and that this seems to have led to actually some improvements in achievement even among students who are remaining in district schools. And we have a good summary of that study on the educationnext.org website that uh, listeners can find if they're uh, curious to learn more. Now, you've mentioned a couple times the opposition to the cap lift in the suburban areas, but it was also the case, if I'm not mistaken, that the opposition was even stronger in Boston in particular. Um, why is it that in those communities where charter schools have the strongest track record of performance, that that performance didn't translate into political support? You know, it, it's such a good question, and it's one that I, I still puzzle over because I don't, in the book, I offer some ideas. I'd, I'd like to share an antidote with you. So um, uh, about uh, six or seven months after the ballot initiative, I was coming home in an event and actually riding, riding in an Uber, and a gentleman who was driving asked me what I do, and I explained to him what I was writing a book about this, and he said to me, oh, yes, well, I voted against the cap lift, and I said, oh, okay, I'm so sorry to hear that, but okay, and well, where do your kids go to school? Well, they go to a charter school in Malden, <laughs> so... It's, I think that it's a real, it was very difficult at the time. Um, the ballot initiative, I think we need to be honest with ourselves, those of us that would like to see the cap abolished. The ballot initiative was really um, a poorly run campaign on the part of charter supporters. And many would say it never should have gone to the ballot. Once we got to the ballot, I don't think that those who support charter schools did a really good job of explaining what they were for and why they were important to any voter. And another thing that came up again and again in interviews from my research was that even consumers of charter public schools in urban areas have over time seen that shift in the sector that I describe in terms of fewer innovative options. So I had a parent tell me that she had several kids attend charter schools in the Boston area and that in the early days they really represented something distinct, something diverse, something that was different from the district. And it wasn't just about MCAS scores because we didn't know much about MCAS scores then. And she said that over time, she really felt this pull that charter schools were becoming sort of all the same. And she as a parent wanted something different. So I think that a lot of those folks in Boston who might be inclined to send their kids to charter schools because for whatever reason they might feel it's a better option, again, didn't really want to make the decision for everybody. And that the those of us who supported the cap lift didn't do a very good job of making our case. So given that the ballot question in 2016 failed, and it seems quite unlikely that the legislature would in the short term return to that topic and overrule the will of the people, at least as it was represented in that outcome, what comes next for charter schools in Massachusetts and what should come next? Yeah, so... I think that one of the things that comes next, and this is part of what I hope we do, at least at the end of this book and the recommendations we provide, is that we really need to press the reset button, so to speak, on the charter school dialogue. Um, we have gotten away from at least one of the original purposes of the movement, which was innovation. And I think that we need to get back to thinking about not only how we provide more innovative options for charter school students, but how we share innovations born in the charter sector better with district schools. Um, we need to be collaborative. We need to get away from this idea that charters and districts are enemies of one another. And another way we do that is by encouraging the legislator to make the funding formula, which is a great bone of contention, more transparent and to make sure that um, 
it's transparent enough so, so that districts can actually see where the money's going and not feel that squeeze. I mean, imagine if you're a superintendent and you're, you know, writing your hypothetical check to a charter school. That probably doesn't feel very good whether or not the money belongs to the child or the school. I think that there are um, things that the legislator could, legislature can do in the short term. But you're right. At the end of the day, what this is going to take is real bipartisan legislative leadership of a type that I don't think we've seen since ed reform. And I think that in the near future, the only way that we see any discussion around the charter school cap is part of a larger package that is ed reform more generally, um, something that the legislature seems to talk about a little bit but never do too much on. Um, so I hope that some of the recommendations that we offer in this book will help reset the dialogue in a more positive way and think about, you know, keep in mind at the core that charter schools, to, to the first question you asked me, they're closing achievement gaps in really, really important ways. And as long as we continue to deny these high quality school options to parents who are demanding them, we're ignoring what continue to be really persistent achievement gaps in this commonwealth. My guest today has been Kara Stillings-Kendell, senior fellow at the Pioneer Institute and the author of the new book, The Fight for the Best Charter Public Schools in the Nation. Kara, congratulations on the book and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.